Today we've come to Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 5 through 9. And this is part of the part of Ephesians where he's talking about what it means to, to be filled with the Spirit. And he's got three things. First of all, uh, we walk in wisdom if we're filled with the Spirit. Second, singing praise to God if we're filled with the Spirit. The third is submitting to one another. And we've been through wives and husbands and how submission works with them. Then we looked at children and parents. And now we have slaves and masters. And this is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And my outline today is I'm going to first of all talk about the elephant in the room. Why does not the Bible condemn slavery directly? That's, we have to deal with that question before we can move on. And then uh, Ephesians 5, 5 through 9, uh, sorry, 6, 5 through 9, a shocking challenge. And then working this out today in the workplace. So, uh, before we turn to the passage then, I want to acknowledge this issue of slavery, and I'm going to have three questions. The first is, why did the Old Testament law allow for slavery? Why did it allow it? To understand that, we have to understand that the, the Old Testament law was not God's final word. It was a provisional until Christ came. It was a very violent society. And Jesus said that, for example, on the subject of divorce, he said Moses allowed divorce, but that was because of the hardness of your heart. It was never God's plan. This is what I say about, about um, the, when divorce, the only time that divorce is allowed. And uh, so Jesus was saying that it was provisional, it was pragmatic, um, and uh, Jesus made a contrast between the law. He said, it was said unto you, but I say to you. And so partly the law was provisional, partly the law was uh, deliberately limited to show uh, the, the big difference when Christ came, to show that the difference between what Christ brought, which was so much better than what the law said. And so the Old Testament law then was, um, was, didn't directly uh, abolish slavery because of these limitations of what it was intended to be. Uh, the second question is, why did Jesus not give any support to anti-Roman freedom fighters? And why did he com comply in a way that was almost colluding with the occupying force? So I, I'll explain why I'm bringing this in, because it's not directly slavery, but it's a social issue. And it was a brutal invading force. The Roman army, they, were, they could be quite brutal at times, and they were there and they had a heavy presence in the time of Jesus. The Jews at the time believed when the Messiah came, he would free them from the Romans. He would lead them to victory. That is what they were looking for, political freedom. And there were many groups, subversive groups at the time, in the time of Jesus, who were doing this through, through terrorist actions, through all kinds of ways they're fighting for freedom against the Romans. And they saw Jesus, many of them, as the answer to their prayers. He was going to be the one who led them. 
And uh, it was as they realized that he wasn't that person that there was the great turning against him at the end. In fact, many people, there's good evidence to think that Judas was actually part of one of these groups. And when Judas realized that Jesus was no way intended to overthrow the Romans, that's when he betrayed him. Um, in fact, Jesus did the opposite. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were collecting tax for the Romans. So someone like Zacchaeus, who came to Christ, became a follower of Jesus, gave back what he'd stolen, but he didn't stop being a, a tax collector. He was still working for the occupying Romans. And as far as we know, Jesus never said, no, don't, don't do that. In fact, Jesus said, if a Roman soldier tells you to walk a mile, what, carry something for a mile, carry it for two. Why did Jesus not do this? Um, when people challenged him, he said, His, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom. It's a real kingdom. But he said, love your enemies. And it turns out that the kingdom of Jesus was much more powerful. Loving your enemies was a more powerful way, ultimately. And what happened was the kingdom of God eventually defeated the Roman Empire. And it grew and grew and grew. And it, it, it eventually, uh, the, the, the emperor himself gave in to Christianity. And it was, it was a power that, that was invincible, that could spread throughout the world, that actually the power of love was stronger than just trying to tackle it head on. Um, the, the, the Jews, incidentally, continued to fight against the Romans until there was uh, most, the most uh, extraordinary, appalling um, destruction of the temple and Judaism and Romans tried to obliterate the Jewish nation because of the constant attempts to, um, to uh, rebel against them. Um, so uh, Jesus didn't pre po preach politics as part of the gospel, nor should we, but that does not mean that Christians should not be involved in politics. Christians, in fact, uh, I think that, it's, that, that this is a place where we should be salt and light. We should be, in our society, salt and light. We should influence the direction uh, of the society is going in. Um, so that's a, 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 um, a comment on that question. Uh, the third question, why does not the New Testament not explicitly condemn the evil of slavery. It doesn't explicitly condemn it. The famous modern historian, uh, Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, he said that the teachings of Jesus and Paul were like bombs going off through history, which eventually led to, to democracy and the obliteration of uh, the abolition of slavery. And even though he's not a Christian, he says, no, that's why it happened. It was Jesus' teaching. It was like a series of bombs that were going off throughout history. And it didn't happen all at once, but eventually it did. And so even though the New Testament doesn't explicitly condemn slavery, it, it says it, it, it brings in a kingdom which is incompatible with slavery. <clears throat> uh, slavery has been there in... <clears throat> in just about every culture in the world since the beginning of recorded history. 
In England, we had the feudal system uh, in medieval times, which was amounted to the same thing. Asia, Africa, Europe, the Americas, everywhere, uh, slavery was just an accepted part of life. I was shocked to read about the slave trading that, that was practiced in the First Nations people here in Canada. It was just everywhere. It was just trading slaves was just part of life. And not even the most enlightened Greek philosophers ever occurred to them that there was actually something wrong with slavery. So how did it end? It was Christians who ended it. No one will dispute that. It was Christians that led to the abolition of slavery. Um, and uh, it's a very complicated story. And, uh, you know, through time, even some Christians owned slaves. It was very messy. But in the end, the love of Christ won out. Now, sadly, there's still slavery uh, all over this world. There's, um, it's been estimated there's 50 million slaves today. And there's effective slavery due to po poverty in many places. But I have to move on, or else we're never going to get to the passage. But I had to just deal with this issue to start with about the New Testament addressing slavery. And uh, although Paul didn't directly address it, there, there was implications that he was working against it. So, for example, in the letter to Philemon, he told Philemon not to, 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 to take Onesimus back as a brother and not as a slave. And so on that individual level, he's telling the person to release the person from slavery. <clears throat> so one more thing we need to say, which is really, really important when we're addressing the subject of slavery, uh, and this is the difference between Roman slavery and many other things that, we've, that have been in this world. The mention of slavery in a modern context, immediately leads people to think of the form of slavery practiced in the New World, in other words, in the USA, uh, during the Roman... Uh, so slavery during the Roman Principate, however, was vastly different. It is therefore important that we understand the nature of these differences so that we do not unwittingly import modern ideas of slavery into the biblical context. There are several distinctive characteristics of Roman-era slavery that should be observed. So he's saying that, that this kind of slavery in modern times that we've seen in the Americas has been far, far worse in many ways than, than slavery throughout history. There's been extraordinarily evil. And so he's making some clarity here. First, racial factors played no role in the, the, in Roman slavery. No role at all. It was absolutely nothing to do with it. Second, many slaves could reasonably expect to be released by the time they were 30 years old. Now, I was shocked to learn this, but it's absolutely true that if the slave owner followed the law, they had to pay the slave. And they had to pay them enough that, in, on average, after about seven years, you could buy your, buy your freedom. And not only was this the law, it was actually practiced so much that a vast number of, the, of citizens in Rome were actually freed slaves. There were vast numbers of freed slaves, and they owned some of the wealthiest people in Rome were freed slaves. Some of the, the great leaders, or some of the great poets were actually 
sons of slaves. So in, pra in practice, this actually happened. It was an expected part. It wasn't something that was a sentence for life. You got freed. You did it. You did your time. And then you, you were freed. That was it's vastly, vastly different to slavery in other times and places. Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains. There's one story about a, a guy who wanted to be an accountant for a very, very wealthy man. He wanted to be his, his chief accountant. And so the only way he could get there was by being a slave. So he sold himself into slavery, became the chief accountant, and then bought his freedom. Because that was, you know, that was, it was slaves who had this top position. So uh, that was the difference. Here's another one. Many slaves received education and training in specialist skills. Few opportunities were provided to slaves in the New World to receive general education or skill development training. Yet this was a common practice of slave owners in the Roman world. This charity to the slave was beneficial to the master as well as the slave. Goodman notes that masters often viewed it as a wise business strategy to buy and train intelligent slaves and to motivate them to our high quality of workmanship by holding out the prospect of freedom after a specified time. And then the last point he raises is freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship to their former masters. Um, uh, uh, there was a law passed uh, um, as time went on by, by the Roman uh, government that if a slave was sick and the master didn't properly care for it, the slave was automatically freed. Just automatic if they weren't cared for properly when they were sick. Um, so uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is that masters didn't always follow the law. The law was, was clear, the law was very supportive, but masters didn't always follow that, and so there was abuse. There was quite a lot of abuse. So when Paul is speaking this passage to masters, it's implying that they follow the law, which would lead to release from slavery. So um, this, is, this then is the, the, uh, the, the first point I wanted to make about the Bible and slavery and the, the, the background, which is very, very important to understand before we go into this passage. <clears throat> so now I want to look at the passage which um, I handed out to you, and we're going to go through this. And uh, <clears throat> this is, this is um, first of all, this is a, just a beautiful piece of work. It's, just, it's got some poetic features in here. So let me first of all describe the poetry and for those of you who haven't heard this in my earlier parts of Ephesians, I'll describe to you what's happening here. This, uh, the structure where I've indented it, so you have, starts off in, in, verse, in the box there, in sincerity of a heart and heart, as you would Christ. And then it's indented, not just in appearance, and then indented again. Then what you get is you get a match between the first section here, in sincerity of heart, as you would to Christ, and then seven here, serving with enthusiasm as to the master, not to man. You get a match in the second line, not just in appearance, matched with um, doing the will of God wholeheartedly. 
and there you get a match in the middle section, which is uh, as to impress humans, let me get that, as to impress humans, but as slaves of Christ. Now, each one of them um, uh, mirrors the other one, so it's a symmetrical structure. The technical word for this is a chiasm, and it's, a, it's a very common in literature in Paul's time and in ancient literature in the Hebrew Bible, like in poetry, in the Psalms. It's very common, extremely common. It's common in, uh, in right throughout the Old Testament. And this has got three levels. We call it A, B, C, C, B, A. Here it's just two, and you see knowing that each person is A, and then B is if, they have something, if they've done something good, they receive back something, that's B, and then back to A, uh, each person, whether they're stable or free. So I've kind of color-coded it to, to show you how that matching works. So it's beautiful, it's, it's lovely the way you've written it out. But also, um, there's the word as, which he's put in there as like a marker in each one. As you would Christ, and he ends up here as to the master. And then in the middle, we've got as to impress humans, contrasted with no, as slaves of Christ. So that's a little poetic feature that is in there. Another feature that's in there is that the normal word that in the New Testament they used for Jesus, to, to speak of Jesus, say when Paul speaks of Jesus, he calls him the Lord. The Lord means Jesus. Nowadays, we're not very precise. We can say Father Lord, which would mean, which would sound very strange to Paul. Um, but because Lord for Paul, the Greek word is kurios, meant Jesus. And he used that word. Now, it happens to be the same word that they would use for master in a master slave relationship. And so Paul is playing off this by saying, no, he is your master. Jesus is your master. So, you, so what I've done is I capitalized it. It's the same word, though, but I've capitalized it to show it means Jesus. So we're serving the master, uh, and the, the earthly, the slave, will receive back from the master, in other words, Jesus. So there's a very clever little play on who the true master is. The true master is in heaven. So um, one more little thing to look at in the, in the poetic features here in this passage is that if you look at the beginning, it starts off, slaves obey your earthly masters, and the word earthly is there. Well, why is he put earthly there? Isn't it obvious? Because he's going to end up by saying that the master, actually your master and theirs, is in heaven. So that there, and that beautifully rounds out the passage going from the earthly master to the heavenly master. So I wanted to draw your attention to those uh, lovely features of the way he's written out before we start diving in. So let's look then at this in a bit more detail. He, he starts then, verse 5, Slaves obey uh, your earthly masters with deep, with, with deep respect. Now, um, some translations will say with fear and trembling. And uh, that's literally what it says, but I don't think it's a good translation. Those of you who know more than one language can know that it's complicated translating from one to another. And um, if, you were to comp if you were to translate, say, the word dragonfly, literally, into another language, what, there's a dragon flying? Like, what is that? No, no, it, we don't, it's not literal. That doesn't make any sense. And so literally... 
it's served them with fear and trembling. But actually, that doesn't actually mean you're trembling. It just is a word, it's a phrase used to respect. Because Paul talks about when he sent Titus to a church and they received him with respect. He uses the expression literally fear and trembling, but of course they didn't, they weren't trembling when he came. Um, so I want just to say that if your translation says fear and trembling, it's, it's, it's making it not a good translation because it's actually true literally, but in fact it means with deep respect. And this is going to be important when we go on to look at how we apply this. So uh, this is how slaves are to treat their masters. And this, uh, this can be difficult. What if they don't deserve respect? What if they're just like, just garbage? I, well, there's a saying in the military, you salute the office, not the person. And so you salute their, their rank not who they are. And so, in a sense, this is true. You're, you're, you're giving respect to them, to the position, even though the person might not be worthy of any respect. You're still treating them because they are actually standing in for Christ, as we'll see. Okay, so let's, uh, let's move on to what's in the box here then. And this is the core of the command. The slaves are to to obey their earthly masters in sincerity of heart as you would Christ. Wow, that's extreme. To say that they should obey their masters as they would Christ? I'm going to suggest to you that today's passage is going to make more demands on, on you people here, probably than any of the ones we've done in Ephesians so far. It's going to be very demanding for you if you're in the workplace. Uh, just think about this. Do you do this at work? Do you treat, do you treat your, your, your boss? Uh, and by the way, if you're going to say, this doesn't apply to me because this is for servants, I'm just going to jump forward and tell you, um, look at the end of verse 8. It says, this applies whether you're slave or free. So this is actually, he's giving like an, a footnote there. This is for everybody. This is for all of us. So uh, sincerity of heart as you would Christ. And here is the, here's a very interesting statement, not just in appearance. And literally that means not just as they see with their eyes, as to impress humans. And um, uh, it literally it's, it's pleasing men, but it's got the idea of you're doing it so that they think you're doing a good job, but you're actually not really bothering. You're just, they just think you're doing a good job. But stuff that can't be seen about your work, that nobody is ever going to see, you don't bother about. Well, nobody's going to see that. That's not going to appear on my annual review, because nobody sees that I've done that. Um, uh, this, is, this is core, because, you know, are you doing your job because you've got a contract, you've got to do this to fill your wage? Or do you really want to do what makes that company succeed? Do you really want that to happen? Do you really want them to be... Because if Jesus is your boss, you will. Um, I, this, I'm going to give some examples from my own life through this, but there's a one company that I've done some work for in the IT space, and um, they had a, a, a useless domain name. 
And I said to him, like, you've got to get a better domain name. And no, 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 we don't need a better domain name. No, you get on with what you're doing, Andrew. And, and I just, I like relentless, no, you've, you've got to get a, and I could say, well, you know, I, I, they've said they don't want one. Why should I bother? But actually, I, if you're going to succeed, you need to do something in this area. And so I just pursued that because if, if, if Jesus is my boss, that's what I would do for him. I would say, no, this is what you need to do. This is, the, this is a weakness here. And so going above and beyond what your, um, your uh, document requirements are, what your contract requirements are. And it says here, so you're, you're not just doing what can be seen, but you're working on what can't be seen. And saying, so as slaves of Christ, so the same idea, you're not doing it to as if you're just trying to impress people, but Jesus can see everything, doing the will of God wholeheartedly. And so this is similar echoing at the beginning there in sincerity of heart. Doing the will of God, not just in appearance, but from your heart. But more than that, serving with enthusiasm as to the master and not to man. Whoa, this could be pretty hard. Um, and now, this could be complicated if the, the company you work for, you don't really believe in where they're going and what they're doing. That could be hard, and I acknowledge that could be a tough thing. And, but nevertheless, here's a call to actually put energy in doing this as if you're serving the master, Jesus, and not to your human boss. Uh, so I told you this was going to be challenging. Can you, can you see how this is challenging for you in the workplace? This is, this is, uh, this is tough to put this into practice. Um, so even if you're self-employed, then you will have clients, and you have to do this for your clients. So that's the core, then, of the teaching here. And then there's some motivation here, which is verse 8. Knowing that each person, each person, everybody, if they've done something good, will receive back from the master, whether they're slave or free. Now, you might say, well, but I thought everything is grace, you know, we don't have to, Jesus isn't interested in our performance. Well, this is an interesting question because although salvation is by grace, we don't do anything to earn our salvation. The Bible is very clear about rewards, that there will be rewards in heaven for uh, everything that we do. <clears throat> and my, the way I, I see it is um, if the best reward I can get is Jesus, then there'll be more of Jesus as a reward. <laughs> And more, more uh, of, the, um, of the good things that he wants to give. And it's very clear. Uh, Paul talks about looking for, forward to his reward. And the many passages it talks about laying up treasure in heaven. And so there is a reward. And so <clears throat> when you are working and you're doing something and you're not being acknowledged, then this is an important thing to think about. There is going to be a reward for this. Um, quite often when I'm preparing a sermon, God does something in my life. And God has a sense of humor because he brings something about which makes me think and then think, oh, I need to preach this sermon to myself. And so while I was preparing this week, 
Um, I had uh, an interruption from somebody and probably wasted a whole hour of my time, more than an hour. And it was wasted. It was just like completely wasted. And I was annoyed by this. Like, I've got so much to do. And this person has just wasted my time. And I was thinking about this. And then I thought, I was, went to preparing my sermon. I thought, oh, duh. Who did you do this for? You did it for God. So you're, it wasn't wasted. He saw it. Jesus saw me do that. And he's going to reward me. I'm going to get reward for that. That is far, far more than if the person was paying me. And so that actually, that completely lifted me out of the annoyance that I was in and really just got me excited uh, that, I, that I could actually have this relationship where this was what was happening. So uh, then it says, then we come to masters. Now one question is, why does he spend so much time on slaves and just a little bit more, a bit, a bit on masters. Probably there were far more slaves in the church than there were masters. Probably because you know Jesus came to save the lost, and these were the people who responded to the gospel. So, um, but also um, uh, part of what he's doing is is um, subverting the order, uh, the expected order in his epistles. Instead of dealing with the masters first and then the slaves, because the masters are more important. He's actually re reversing it. So we see it right the way through. We see wives, husband. We see children, parents. We see slaves and then masters. And so rather than repeat everything, he says, masters, behave the same way towards them. In other words, all this is true towards them. And I'll talk in a minute about what that could mean. But then he says, discarding the use of threats. Now, what does that actually mean? Um, that really means negative motivation. Um, this is, you know, when you're trying to motivate somebody to do a good job, you can do two things. You can say, do that job, or you won't get any food tonight, you'll get fired, you'll get, you know, I'll beat you, whatever. You could, you could threaten like that. Or you could say, do that job, and I have something very special for you. Now, do that job, and I'm, you know, you're going to be... So, so you can motivate, and this is true today, you can motivate people in both ways. And what, what this passage is really saying is discard. The word is actually quite a strong one. It's like throw away, throw away the use of threats as a motivation. Um, and then he says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. In other words, he doesn't... He, he's not going to say, oh, well, you're a slave and you're a master, you've got to be treated differently. No, you're, you've got the same standard he's going to look at as whether you've kept this, this pattern of behaving that he's talking about earlier. We're treating the person as if they're working for Christ. So that is, um, that's a, a, a look through the passage. And I'm going to, going to come on now to some... Um, some questions about that. And uh, I'd say that, um, actually, let me, let me just give you a couple of quotes on this. Here's a quote um, from one writer, Andrew Lincoln. He says, most striking to contemporary readers, people reading this epistle, was the writer's address to slaves as full members of the Christian community who are seen as equally responsible with their masters to the common Lord. So he's just like just addressing them as fully, fully um, 
engaged spiritually as much as anyone else. And uh, now, this, what, what we're talking about in this passage that I've seen must have been very hard to do if your master was cruel. If you had a cruel and abusive master, can you imagine what it must have been like to follow Jesus' words, to actually serve them from the heart, do their best? It must have been... A, I can't imagine what, how, how tough that would have been to have done that. And so I want to say to you that if slaves were told to do this, who might have an abusive master, how much more should we, it should be easy for us to do this, to follow this in our own experience in the workplace. And so what I'd like to do then, we've looked about slavery in the Bible, we've looked about the challenge of this passage, I'd look now, I want to look at working this out today in the workplace working it out in the workplace. And the challenge comes when we realize that if slaves should serve cruel masters like this, how much more we who are free should have the same attitude. And uh, I don't know about your work experience, but I've had good and bad work situations. In my work in the computer industry, I've worked for many different organizations, and some were wonderful, and some were terrible. And um, in my work life, I've been abased, I've been micromanaged, I've been given jobs, and then the work's been discarded. And as I talk to other people, I realize this is quite common. As I talk to people, I realize that 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 more, you know, probably the majority of people have got some, some issues that they've been facing in their workplaces, some of them quite serious. Um, probably the biggest source of anger in my life has been things that have happened in the workplace where I've just been treated like dirt. And I felt um, that um, undervalued, I've been exploited. And this is a, this is a, a challenge for us. And so I want to give you some, um, some thoughts about this. The first of all is we're not act actually servants or slaves in our society. We trade time for money. We give them time, we get money in return. Within that, we do our very best. But I would say that sometimes there is exploitation and unions are necessary sometimes to stop that. And it's not wrong to, if you're being asked to work something that is outside of what you're being paid to do or is expected, the actually exploitation. It's not wrong to, to lay down the line when it comes to exploitation. So I, you might say, well, how is this compatible with what Paul's saying? I think you can still have a deep respect and do your very best with what is legitimately required of you. But this is not a call to being exploited. This is not a call to working in an unhealthy or an unsafe environment. This is not a call to something that is wrong. Because we're in a, we're, we have the freedom, generally speaking, not to, 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 um, to stand up for our rights um, in, this, in, in this country. So um, I would so bear that in mind. 
I'm not just I'm not just saying just um, agree to, to do everything and, and never stand up for yourself. I'm not saying that at all. This is a line that we have to draw. We have to walk between it, but we do both. Um, so uh, I was once in um, in a work situation where I was very angry with a boss, and all my hard work was uh, being being ignored. And I was being ordered around like a nobody. And I was bringing creative skill from years of experience, and it wasn't even considered. Uh, have you ever been in that? I don't know, those of you who've got some kind of creative background, you just you work hard on something creatively, and then it just gets thrown out by someone who doesn't understand that side of things at all. And it just feels like, well, this is, you're treating me like you don't even know what you're doing, and you're treating me like this. And I was so angry at that time. <clears throat> I can remember it well. And it was actually this passage that, um, that, that ended my anger. And not only did it end my anger, but it enabled me to reframe the whole thing as an opportunity. I thought, wow, I can actually see this as an opportunity to, to, to reframe the whole thing and say, no, I just, all this beautiful work that I did, all this creative work, this is for Jesus, and he's pleased with me. And okay, well, they didn't accept it, but... That's you no. Know, that's a problem that they have. That's up to them. I'm doing it for Jesus. And as I saw this challenge, I was able to reframe it in a way that actually brought me joy. It did work in that situation. Um, so I want to I want to encourage you um, to to try and and uh, draw this line between not being exploited, not being treated. Wrongly, but at the same time, uh, working as if Jesus is your boss and doing your very, very best to go beyond what the expectations are. And uh, the other, the other point is uh, that um, if you su supervise others, to treat them with deep respect. Treat them as if they were subcontracted to you by Jesus, who's watching how you treat them. So if you're, if you're a boss and you've got people working for you, then this is, I think, a good way of, of uh, applying the passage to us today. Remember, you'll be rewarded by Jesus for your patience and fairness. So um, I'm going to try and pull this together into final slide now. And uh, I'm going to say, in your workplace, treat your boss with deep respect, even when undeserving, like this, the phrase, salute the rank and not the person. Treat them with deep respect, even when undeserving. Don't just do your job, but seek the good of the organization you are working for. And this might be a challenge for you. You're, you might not get accepted, but do the best that you can. Put your heart into it, imagining that Jesus is there. Imagine he is actually the one you're working for. He's watching all the time. And the last thing I want to say Remember the reward. It's not wrong to do that. Remember that the pay level you're going to get from Jesus is way, way above 
what you're going to get in this world. Not that you shouldn't want a good pay in this world, but nevertheless, you're going to get a bonus from Jesus, which is way, way better if you're working for him. So uh, I, I want to, um, and then one more thing I want to say is that the context of this passage is being filled by the Spirit. And you cannot do this without the Holy Spirit within you. You cannot. This is something that's done by the Spirit, with the power of the Spirit in you. Um, so uh, I know we're running a little bit late here, but I just wondered, I think I ought to open it up just for a couple of questions, because I know a lot of things come out. Anybody got any questions or thoughts you know, about this? I've had some tough spots that were, that were tough, tough to work at. And yeah, remembering, remembering I was serving Christ. I'm the one who benefited the most of that change of heart. That is, that's a great point. So, so as we follow what's said here, it's actually us that's going to benefit through that. Yeah. What about uh, when the organization is inherently exploited? That, that, yeah, that I rec recognize that is a problem. I was, I was going to mention that, but like we'd already got a lot of stuff in there. But you're exactly right. What if the organization is, is problematic? Yes. So I would say, well, for the, not, not, not necessarily the success of the organization, but for the good, which might mean it being changed. How does this connect to the people you work? To your co-workers? That is a great question. How does this connect to your co-workers? And I think that um, that that could um, the, the principle could be translated across by we try and elevate them, we try and lift them up so that they will actually b benefit in the workplace. We, we want them to do well. We're not competitive in a way that I want myself to do and you do badly, but we want them to do well and them to succeed. And uh, uh, as if Jesus is a co-worker and we want him to succeed. I think it's, that's a really good question about that, yeah. Any other? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. If, if, the, if the earthly boss is exploitative or abusive, challenging that is serving the greater master. And you, I, I actually meant to bring a point in, what if we're being asked to do something that is wrong? And so we serve our heavenly master as a priority. And we're actually, so in fact, challenging them may ultimately be, be, help, be helping them because we want them to realize they're accountable to God. So you're right to nuance that, that it's not just slavish obedience, but it's obedience to their ultimate good, which might, be, which might in fact mean re refusing to do something which they're going to have to give account before God if they do it, because it's wrong. So thank you for bringing that in. And that's part of, um, I guess, the extra freedom that we have to do nowadays. But even a slave would, would possibly have to take a stand in that, in that way in Roman times. Thank you for that. One more question. Yes. This ties into forgiveness. If you're required to forgive, um, if you have a master or a boss who's problematic, yeah, so forgiveness is actually implied in the instructions here. Yeah, great, that's excellent. Okay. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this challenging passage. And Lord, we do pray that your, your spirit will guide each one of us here how to put this into practice in our lives. And Lord God, we pray that we will see love triumphing over evil 
and your kingdom spreading as we trust you with this way, this call to live. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, bless us with joy as we know it's you we're serving. Lord, may each one of us be given wisdom and grace and strength to put this passage into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.